Throughout the entire church age, people have tried to figure out the timeline of end-time events, including the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And with all that being the case, it's sad to say that church history is actually filled with false teachers who have presented the wrong dates after failing to just figure it all out. Uh, For example, there was a second century Roman priest. His name was Hippolytus. He predicted Christ's return would occur in 500 AD. And uh, if you didn't figure it out by now, uh, he was wrong. (laughs) He was completely wrong about it. John Wesley also believed that Christ would return in 1836 because of his interpretive calculation of Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. And as it turns out, John Wesley was also wrong. Many believe that the return of Halley's Comet in 1910 would usher in the return of Jesus Christ. And guess what? They were wrong. Then in 1988, Edgar Weisenach, uh, he, he wrote a book titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And within this book, he presented, you guessed it, 88 reasons for why Jesus would return or the rapture would take place there in 1988. And when his prediction was proven wrong, well, then he decided to crunch the numbers again. He realized he forgot to carry the one. uh, And then he came out with a new report, which was initially titled 89 reasons why the rapture is in 1989. And well, uh, we've come and gone since 1989 and he was wrong. Speaking of being wrong, let's not forget about Harold Camping, who once assured us that the day of judgment would occur on May the 21st, 2011. And when May 21st, 2011 came and went, that's when Camping realized that he also figured it out all wrong because he too forgot to carry the one. And so he recrunched the numbers and according to his new figuring, he informed his followers that the day of judgment would actually occur on October 21st, 2001. Sadly, all of Camping's followers woke up on October 22nd of the same year, only to discover that Camping had been, once again, incorrect. And as a result, well, he was clearly unable to figure out God's prophetic calendar. And yet, this hasn't stopped many more from trying to figure it all out. For example, I want to consider the recent prediction found in a video produced by Mike at RepoMan64, because that's the guy you want to get your prophecy information from, right? said a guy named Bungie. But Mike was assuring us here uh, that, <laughs> that the rapture was supposed to take place on April 2nd, 2022. Yeah, last April, the rapture of the church was supposed to take place, according to Mike at Repo Man 64. However, just like the date setters before him, Mike at Repo Man 64 was completely wrong. Then there's Stephen Dexter, the YouTube influencer who produced a really nice video presentation of his calculations. And, and his, according to his figuring, you know, he was led to believe that the rapture of the church was supposed to, to occur actually a month ago on May the 31st. Uh, you know, I was super excited. I packed my bags. I was ready to go. Sadly, he was wrong. As you've probably figured out, you know, May the 31st has come and gone and we're still here. Now, as we consider all of these examples, and this is just a scratch on the surface of those who have tried to figure out the the future events that God has has planned, you know, as we consider all of this, what we can say for for sure is this, that that figuring out the future is hard. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's really difficult. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord Jesus has actually provided us with a few principles which will help us to figure out God's plans for the future. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that we can actually figure out the date of the rapture. 
And yet we do at least have a biblical basis for figuring out the future events that God has graciously revealed to us. And as we study through the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that we can figure out the future with the prophetic parable that's presented here in the Olivet Discourse. Secondly, uh, we can figure out the future with the prophetic promises that we find all throughout the Bible. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that we figure out the future with the prophetic precept that Jesus presented here in our text today. And with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting the people with the parable of the fig tree. Now, as you make your way to the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel account, uh, well, we should take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was two weeks ago when we began our study of the Olivet Discourse, which was a message that Jesus presented there on the Mount of Olives. It was two weeks ago when we started considering the question, are we living in the last days? And I I feel like we saw sufficient evidence to believe that these are the last days. Then in our study last Sunday, we examined three end-time indicators, which include the construction of the new temple there in Jerusalem, the enforcement of a final seven-year treaty, and finally, the times of terror, which Jesus says will come upon this planet. Well, now here we are in the final section of this sermon, and we find Christ Jesus now presenting us with a parable about the fig tree. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 21. I want to draw your attention to verse 29. Here we learn that he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his disciples to figure out the future. And one way that he did this was by presenting them with the parable of the fig tree. Now, just to be clear, I should remind you that a parable is an earthly lesson with a heavenly meaning. Or in other words, a parable is a simple story with a supernatural lesson. And in the context of the Olivet Discourse, the Lord Jesus here is presenting this parable about a fig tree in order to answer the question that the disciples previously presented about the signs which would precede his second coming. That's what they asked him. They wanted to know, what are the signs that we will see before your return? And this is part of his answer to that question. As we begin to take a closer look at this parable, it's important to understand that there are many who have mistakenly used this parable to predict the very day of the rapture. And you can even find just a a slew of videos on YouTube where teachers come along and take this very parable and they start, you know, inserting information and, and drawing your attention to a specific date that they've calculated. There are, there are those who have used this parable to calculate the time of Christ's second coming, the, the day of judgment. And, and while most of these teachers have presented us with convincing cases for their end time calculations, well, it's sad to say that these predictions, they, they thus far have been always incorrect. And the reason why is due to the fact that the parable of the fig tree includes prophetic descriptors that are very difficult to properly identify. To, to prove my point here, let's back up and take another look at this parable. I want to back up and, and begin reading again at verse 29. Here again, Luke tells us that the Lord Jesus spoke to them a parable. 
And this is what he says. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. Now, I want to stop right here. I want to consider the, the meaning of this prophetic parable. And in order to do this, we must first identify the symbolic meaning of the fig tree. Most Bible teachers who hold to the pre-trib position, as I do, uh, the, most teachers are quick to insist that the fig tree actually represents Israel. And, and there are several reasons for believing this. One reason why is because there are a, a few passages in the Old Testament that compare the Israelites to figs on a tree. Not only that, but, but as we consider the context of this prophetic parable, we immediately remember that the Lord Jesus here is focusing our attention on the events that will transpire there in Israel during the time of tribulation. And so while he begins with a focus on the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, he advances the narrative to the end times when the kingdom of Israel will be surrounded by all the kings of the earth. And so the context really is that this prophecy points to the end time events there in Israel. So it's not a stretch to imagine that the fig tree is a representation of Israel. I think it's a safe bet for those of us who think that the fig tree is a parabolic picture of Israel. And yet at the same time, it's also important for us to remember that this interpretation is just speculation. Nowhere in the scriptures does Jesus say, oh, and by the way, the fig tree is Israel. Now, if that were there in the Bible, then it'd be like, oh, there's there's no speculation here. But we don't find that. And so let's be humble and just say that this is just sanctified speculation that the fig tree is Israel. At the same time, we're also left with a question about the other trees that Jesus mentions there in verse 29. Again, he declares, look at the fig tree and all the trees. Now, we don't find this reference to all the other trees in the, the synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark. We just find the fig tree mentioned in Matthew and Mark. Here, we find the fig tree and all the trees. This you know, makes it a little bit more difficult to start you know, speculating about what we're talking about. But let me just suggest that if it's true that the fig tree is Israel, well, then I guess the rest of the trees would be the Gentile nations of the world. I think that would logically follow. But at the same time, we're still left with the question of, well, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the budding of all the trees? And with this question in mind, let's take another look at the parable. Let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 29. Again, Jesus declares, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they, when they, not just the fig tree, when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Now, uh, we should notice here that Jesus isn't re- referring just to the budding of the fig tree. Instead, he's, he's referring to the budding of all the trees. And while it's possible, it's, it's possible that the budding of the fig tree is a reference to the population explosion which is taking place there in Israel, because that is the, the, the typical interpretation of the pre-trib teacher. This still leaves us left with the question, well, what about the budding of the rest of the trees? Uh, What are we actually talking about here when we talk about all of the trees budding? Not only that, but we're also left with more questions about, well, what's the right time to start counting a generation? At what point in the budding process, if we can even identify what the budding is, you know, when do we begin, you know, uh, you know, counting the generation that would follow? And to further explain the, 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 the problem here, I want to consider the application that Christ Jesus then goes on to present. If you would look with me once again, beginning at, beginning at verse 31. Uh, here again, he declares, so you also, when you see these things happening, talking about all the you know, end time prophecies that he's already presented, when you see these things happening, uh, know that the kingdom of God is near. Surely I say to you, 
This generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Now, now there are some teachers who are very confused about this, even uh, skeptical scholars who come along and say, well, you know, it's been more than a generation since Jesus presented this prophecy. Therefore, this prophecy has failed because they seem to think that he's talking about the generation there at the temple as he's teaching. But clearly we know that's not the case. He's talking about the generation that sees the budding of the fig tree and all the trees. At the same time, the people who are here at the time when the budding of the fig tree and all the trees begins to take place, that's the same generation that will be here to witness the fulfillment of all the end time prophecies. And with that being the case, well, we should take a moment to ask, what's a generation? How long is it? How long is a generation? Once again, we begin to realize that there are different ways to measure a generation by simply looking at the Greek word, which is translated generation. This, this word could refer to a whole multitude of people living at the same time. It could, it could refer to that period of time. It could also refer to a period of time that spans 30 to 33 years, according to the Greek word. And then, and then some people go back to the Old Testament and show a generation being upwards of 70 years. And, and so a lot of the Bible teachers will come along and say, oh, 70 years, there, we got to use 70 years. Well, says who? If Jesus were to say, and the generation is 70 years, well, okay, then, you know, that's clear. But he doesn't. At the same time, the Greek word, which was rendered generation, was also used poetically. And remember, this is a parable. And when this word is being used poetically, it's just a reference to a class of people who are defined by something other than an age of time. And so a generation could refer to a class of people experiencing the same tribulation. How long could that last? Well, as long as they're experiencing the same tribulation, right? Being that the Lord Jesus here is presenting a parable, then we really can't say for certain if he's referring to you know, a, a group of people living at the same time or a 30-year period of time or a 70-year period of time. or It's just kind of open to interpretation. And whether we're talking about, you know, trees or whether we're talking about figs or whether we're talking about a frame of time, Those who want to use this parable to begin setting specific dates regarding end-time events, they will fail to predict the future, and and they'll be found to be, to some level, a false teacher. Not only that, but they're also missing the entire point of this prophetic parable. They're missing the point of the parable. The, The parable isn't designed to help us lock down certain dates but rather to give you a basic philosophical principle of what we should do as we start seeing these things taking place. In order, in order to explain my point, let's take another look there at Luke 21, verse 31. Here again, the Lord Jesus declares, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, as we take a closer look at this verse, we must not fail to notice that the Lord Jesus was actually directing our attention back to the events that he uh, listed back in verse 20. If you would back up and look at verse 20 there, we learn that the city of Jerusalem will once again be surrounded by armies. Now, remember, when we studied this, I, I pointed out many times that Jerusalem has been surrounded by armies, uh, but, but this is specifically referring to the final time. This is talking about the, the, the war that we call the Battle of Armageddon. And when this event begins to happen, that generation will be here to watch the end of all things. Yeah, so, so when, when you see these things happening, Jesus says, when you see these things, these things, what things? The, the things that he's talking about when the battle of Armageddon begins. 
when the people begin to flee from Israel into the mountains, when you see that happen, that generation will not pass away before uh, the end of all uh, biblical prophecies pointing to uh, these end time events. Simply put, when the world sees the kings of the earth gathering together against Israel for the battle of Armageddon, this is the generation that will witness the the end of, of all these things. And it's also interesting to note here that when he says that the kingdom of God is near, when you see these things happening, the kingdom of God is near. That, that word near found in verse 31 Well, it's translated from the same Greek word that he used in verse 30, where he assured his audience that the budding of the trees is evidence that summer is now near. That's that same Greek word, near. With that being the case, you know, the parable of the fig tree was actually being presented so that we could figure out the future by simply looking at the signs of the time so that we might recognize when the end of all things begins to approach. When you see... The, the tr- all the fruit trees beginning to bear their fruits, when you see the budding of fruit trees, you know what? It's almost summer. And, and when you see these events happening in the world, well, what are, what are we supposed to know about this? Well, in a very general sense, that the end is almost near. That's the purpose of this parable, to help us to understand the times in which we live. And, and so we should. I like the way that Jesus uh, put this in Matthew chapter 16. It's there where Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of Israel by declaring, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. He's saying, well, you know how to do something very basic, like just look at the color of the sky at a certain time of the day and recognize what that, what that means by way of weather. But you can't read the scriptures and figure out that this is the time of the first advent. They didn't realize that they were living in the days of our Messiah's first advent. And the reason why is because when they read the Bible, they read it with their own preconceived ideas. They read, it, read the Bible with, with their own agenda. They would read through the Old Testament uh, passages about, about the prophecies for the Messiah, and, and they, would, they would put their own spin on it. Because they weren't really trying to understand the signs of the times. No, instead, they were simply coming along and trying to force their own interpretations upon the text. And so he rebukes them for it. In similar fashion, there are many Christians here in the 21st century church who are failing to figure out uh, the, the meaning of the fig tree. And the reason why is because they're trying to force their interpretation onto the text rather than just recognizing that it's supposed to clue us in as to the time in which we live. When we begin to see the fig tree and all the other trees budding or beginning to produce the fruit that we see described in the prophecies, when this begins to happen, you better know summer is near. And so we would all do well to study the scriptures, which help us to understand God's prophetic plans for the future so that we can begin to figure out what time we live in. And while it's true that this prophetic parable can help us to figure out God's plan for the future, listen, uh, we're also able to figure out the future as we consider all of the prophetic promises that we find in the Bible. And with this as the focus, let's uh, begin to study this second point by turning our attention back to the Olivet Discourse found here 
in the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel account. I want to back up and begin reading once again there in the middle of verse 29 where the Lord Jesus declares, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Wow. Here we find the Lord Jesus assuring his audience that the prophecies that he's presented, they will be fulfilled without fail. The prophecies that he was presenting here in the Olivet Discourse will be fulfilled without fail. For example, notice in in verse 31, here he informs us that those who see these things happening can know. Not that they can guess or that they can wonder or that they could hope for, but they can know that the kingdom of God is near. That word know was translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it speaks of something that is sure and certain. In this sense, Jesus was proclaiming the truth of this promise by assuring his audience that the the prophetic signs that he presented here in in this sermon uh, would surely come to pass. And at the same time, he was also validating the knowledge which is acquired by those who spend time studying his prophetic promises. As we study his prophetic promises, we can know with certainty these things will come to pass. We also find our Savior presenting the same assurance there in verse 32 where he declares, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means, there are no means by which these things won't come to pass. This generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. As we consider this promise, we should notice the word assuredly there at the beginning of the verse. That word assuredly was translated from the Greek word Amen, or as some might say, amen. It's, yeah, it's a pretty common word. We typically use this word, uh, you know, at the end of our prayers in order to lock it in. You know, we've got to say amen to, to make sure that God's going to give us what we ask for, right? Yeah, well, some people treat it like a magic word, you know, just hocus pocus, amen, you know, and, but it's not that. It just speaks of the truthfulness of something or, 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 or the surety of something. The word amen, you know, in the original language speaks of something that, you know, that they would use this word at the beginning of a sentence like right here. You see him using amen at the beginning of this sentence to say, what I'm about to say is true. The information I'm about to share with you, it's sure and it is true. And so he says, amen. I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. In light of this meaning of the word, you know, the the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they render verse 32 in this way. I tell you the truth. All that came from the word amen. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. We should also notice the Lord Jesus then doubles down on this promise. It's there in verse 33 where he declares, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. There are no means by which his words will fail. Never going to happen. 
And as we consider what he's saying here, the Lord Jesus is actually assuring his audience that the prophetic words that he was presenting were more sure and more lasting and more certain than the earth itself. And furthermore, the surrounding universe. While it's true that the cursed creation is eventually going to be restored at the time when, when the Lord decides to refurbish you know, uh, the entirety of creation, we can also be certain that the word of God will continue to remain true forevermore. This is the point that the prophet Isaiah was making in Isaiah chapter 40. There he declares, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God stands forever. There is never a time, not today, nor any time in the future, nor has there ever been a time in the past when the word of God fails. The word of God stands forever. I like the way that the psalmist put it in in the 119th Psalm. It's actually verse 89 where the psalmist declares this. He says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The word of God has forever been settled there in heaven. And with that being the case, we can be certain that all of the prophecies that we find in the Bible will be fulfilled and without fail because the word of God will never fail. What this also means then is that those who spend time studying the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled well, we're going to be blessed with this information as we gain the knowledge that, that God has decided to reveal about the, the future plans that he has. If you want to try to figure out the future, then study what God said about it. Spend time learning the scriptures to know what God has revealed, not, not what God hasn't revealed. Though a lot of people want to spend time speculating about what God hasn't revealed. Why, why not spend our time studying what he has revealed? And learning what he has revealed. And and listen, one great place to start, it's the book of Revelation. I know, some people just got scared. But we shouldn't be afraid of the the book of Revelation. And and in order to prove my point, I want to consider the way that John actually begins the book of Revelation. It's here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, where John declares, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Are, Are you his servants? If so, this is for you then. God gave gave this to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And and just to be clear about this and, and refraining from all short jokes, he's actually saying that these things will rapidly take place. In other words, once these things begin, they will all rapidly take place. And John says that he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who does what? Who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. According to John, those who will read the prophecies found in this book with the purpose of hearing, which is to say understanding the content, all with the goal of then applying it to our lives, these people will be blessed as we take to heart the words written in this prophetic book because the time is always drawing nearer. Every day, the time draws nearer. And according to John here, the the Lord has promised to bless those who will read this book, 
with the desire to figure out God's future plans, all with the aim of applying this information to the way we live. With this as the goal, we would all do well to remember that heaven and earth will pass away before the prophetic words of Jesus Christ fail to be fulfilled. And so studying the book of Revelation is a perfect place to start when it comes to trying to figure out God's plans for the future. Sadly, though, there are many in the world today who will scoff at the prophetic promises that we find in the word of God. And with that being the case, I want to take a moment to consider the way that Peter addresses these end time scoffers. If you would hold your place here in the gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to 2 Peter chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Peter, well, I just want to take a moment to point out that those who are quick to dismiss the future tense prophecies that we find in the Bible, they're typically those who don't really believe that the Bible is the word of God. And it makes sense. If I didn't believe the Bible to be the word of God, well, then why would I believe any prophecy about the future? Why, why would I think that the author of this book would even be able to know what's going to happen in, in the future? As, as we've already seen with you know, Christians who get into date setting, uh, you know, it's very hard to figure out the future. And, and if a person has a hard time believing that the Bible is the word of God, well, then we shouldn't be surprised when they scoff at, about the prophetic promises that point to future tense events. That being the case, I'd like to point out that one of the best ways for us to address the scoffing of these skeptics, well, it's by simply presenting them with all of the biblical prophecies that have already been fulfilled. If you want to silence the scoffing of a skeptic, present them with all of the prophecies found in the Bible that were written before the event, but then was fulfilled perfectly. To further explain my point, it'll help you to know that at least 27% of the Bible presents predictions about future events. 27%, that's huge. And that's way off the charts when, when you compare it to other religious writings like the Quran, you know, or the Vedas, or Upanishads, or, or the Book of Mormon, or what have you. Most of those religious writings contain zero prophecy. In the Bible, we have at least 20, 27% of the Bible. In other words, more than one in four verses presents prophecies about events that were future tense at the time of the writing. And that's a great way to test whether this is the word of God or not. And the reason why is because humans don't know the future in advance. I mean, Nostradamus, you know, was, was very inaccurate, barely 50%, I believe. And yet the scriptures, one of the, one of the reasons why I began to believe that the Bible was the word of God before I came to Christ, you know, one of the reasons why is because I was presented with the information about prophecy. I was presented with, with details about prophecies that, that were written prior to the events and then fulfilled with, with, with great detail. What you might not know is that at, at least one half, get that, at least one half of all biblical prophecies have already been fulfilled. And with accurate precision that, that can only come from an omniscient, all-knowing source who is able to see the end from the beginning. One example, just briefly, is found in the book of Daniel. We actually find several prophecies about the successive kingdoms which would arise after Babylon. Several different ways Daniel, uh, in his book, describes the kingdom that would come along after, after Babylon, and then the kingdom that would rise up after that one, and, after, and so on and so forth. And as we actually consider the kingdoms that have risen up throughout the years on the world stage, we see that the prophecies of Daniel are 100% accurate and with incredible detail. It's amazing. 
Clearly, Daniel is not the author of this. He was receiving intel from the God whose mind is infinite and knows the end from the beginning. Another angle on this is to consider all of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. You know, there's at least 300 prophecies about the coming promised Messiah. And we know that the Lord Jesus overcame all incredible odds by fulfilling all of the prophecies about his first advent. Now think about that for a moment. If, if Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the prophecies concerning his first advent, overcoming just supernatural odds, what are the chances he's going he's gonna to fulfill, fulfill the prophecies about his second coming? If he's already fulfilled all the first advent prophecies, then what's the likelihood that he's going to come back and fulfill the second coming prophecies? Listen, as we consider all of the Old Testament prophecies that have already been fulfilled, and I've barely scratched the surface on this, we can assure the skeptical scoffers that rise up here in these last days that the rational person who will honestly look at these things will come to the conclusion that that the, the prophetic content that we find in the Bible must come from an infinite mind who sits outside of time and space and is able to see the end before it happens. And just like the biblical prophecies that have already come to pass, we can be certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, they will come to pass all in God's timing. It's for this reason that Peter encouraged us to be patient as we wait for the fulfillment of all things. And not only that, but he also helps us to, to grasp you know, the, the best approach for dealing with the skeptical scoffers. And with all that, let's consider how Peter puts it here in Second Peter chapter 3. If you would look with me there, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 3. Here Peter informs us that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that, that then uh, existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now here in these verses, we find Peter presenting us with a prophecy which is presently being fulfilled, just as Peter promised. Scoffers have risen up here in these last days. Skeptical scoffers who mock the idea of our Messiah's return, and they ridicule the Christian who actually believes it. And yet, who's being really ridiculous here? The evidence from prophecy is completely on our side. According to the compound law of probabilities, it would be just irrational to think that the rest of these prophecies won't come to pass. Of course they will. Over 50% of the prophecies found in the Bible have already come to pass. And so the, the, the probability that the rest of them will also come to pass, it's huge. We live in a day and an age when skeptical scoffers, though, are quick to reject the doctrine of Christ's second coming, and, and this despite the fact that the Lord Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of his first advent. You better believe he's going to fulfill the second advent prophecies as well. And yet, according to Peter, these unbelievers will scoff about the second coming. And why? 
Well, because it's been 2,000 years since he said so. So, so, so God's on, on your calendar. Uh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. You get to call the shots because, you know, 2,000 years is just too long. And Peter says, don't you realize that a 1,000 years is like a day in heaven? Yeah, yeah, it's been 2,000 years here on earth. How, how long is that in heaven? Two days. Yeah, he's been waiting for two days. Is that, is that unreasonable to, to wait two days in heaven's time? As they scoff, we should help them to understand that God's not on the calendar of an unbeliever. He's on his timeline. And he will fulfill his promises perfectly and at the perfect time. We should also notice what Peter wrote next here in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you would look with me, we'll, we'll pick up at verse 9. There he declares, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Scoffers, listen, if you think that he's just being slack, that, that he fell asleep and forgot what time it is here on earth, no, that's not the case. The Lord isn't slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But... The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here in these verses, we find Peter helping every Christian to realize that the believer ought to be looking forward to the coming day of God. And it's sad to say that so many in the church have given up on this. So many in the church today aren't interested in prophecy. They'd, they'd much rather go to a feel-good church, you know, where, where, where the pastor, you know, just gave them the pep rally that they needed to make it at least another day, and, and they learn nothing about prophecy because prophecy's scary. And so let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, people have predicted the end time so many times that we just can't even really know. So, so why look at, at, at it at all? Well, because the Bible says to. We should be looking for new heavens and a new earth. And Peter tells us that we should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. How do we do that? Well, by studying the scriptures. But by studying what the Bible says about the last days so that we can understand God's plan for the future. We ought to earnestly desire and eagerly await the day when the Lord Jesus will establish his millennial kingdom here on this earth. And with this as our focus, we would all do well to study the prophetic promises that we find in God's word as we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will finally dwell. So we see then that uh, we not only figure out God's future plans according to the prophetic parable of the fig tree, But we also figure out God's plan for the future by studying all the prophetic promises which will be fulfilled and without fail. Thirdly and finally, we're able to figure out God's plan for the future according to the prophetic prophetic precept that Jesus presents here in the Olivet Discourse. And with that, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 21. As you arrive there in the 21st chapter of Luke's Gospel account, I want to pick up our study of the Olivet Discourse beginning at verse 34. Here the Lord Jesus declares, Take heed to yourselves... 
lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Luke describing the way that the Lord Jesus continued to teach the people who would come to hear him while he was there at the temple. And just to be clear, you know, the Greek word, which is translated teaching here, it's found there in verse 37. It's used of teachers who deliver didactic discourses in order to instill doctrinal truth into the minds of their students. The same word was also used of the professor who who presents their pupils with principles and precepts designed to instruct. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus continued to do until the day he was arrested. He continued to present prophetic precepts to the people who came to listen. Sadly, we don't have a record of the messages that Christ Jesus continued presenting there at the temple. But what we do have We have Luke's record of the prophetic precepts that Jesus presented in the final portion of the Olivet Discourse, and so we should consider this. Now, it's true that the Lord Jesus began this message with a prophetic description of the last days, which would begin with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and then continue all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But within this message, he also concluded this discourse with several prophetic precepts which were designed to help his disciples to understand how we ought to be living as we move forward into the future. Because, listen, it's not just important to, to, to you know, realize what God's plans are for the future, but it's also important for us to know how we ought to live as we look forward to his uh, future fulfillments. With this as the focus, I want to back up and take a closer look, beginning there at verse 34. Here Jesus declares, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Here we find the Lord Jesus presenting the people with a point of application by encouraging them that they needed to take heed to themselves. In other words, he's instructing them to be careful as they look forward to the future. Take heed to yourselves because you might grow weary in well-doing. And if you grow weary in well-doing, if you grow tired of waiting on the return of Jesus Christ then it's possible that your hearts become weighed down with carousing, with with getting drunk, with the anxieties of this life. If you lose sight of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, then you might slip back into a life of bondage. And the backsliding believer has a heart that's carried away with all of the carousing and drunkenness and anxieties of this world. And it's sad to say that there are many backslidden believers in the world today who are failing to follow this prophetic precept, which is to keep focused on the end times so that we have that hope that keeps us from returning to a life of sin. That being the case, you know, I encourage every Christian to embrace the precept that Jesus was presenting there in verse 36. There again, he declares, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 
Now, as we consider this prophetic precept, it's, it's important for us to remember the, uh, the dispensation in which Christ was speaking. The, the Lord Jesus was actually speaking to the people at the temple prior to the beginning of the church age. Remember, the, the church age actually begins on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. And it's true that Jesus had many disciples at this point in time. At the same time, it's also true that he was presenting these instructions prior to the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out and and on that day started sealing believers into the mystical body of Christ that we call the church. That being the case, it's nice to know that uh, the born-again believer is going to escape the time of tribulation uh, through, uh, if we're still here, the rapture of the church. We have not been appointed to wrath. And so these days will not come upon the church. Unfortunately for us, we still don't know the day, nor do we know the hour when the rapture of the church will actually occur. And so this precept is still important for us. It's for this reason that I encourage every Christian to follow the prophetic precept that Jesus was presenting here. And just to be clear, notice again, it's there in the beginning of verse 36 where Jesus declares, watch therefore and pray always. Very simple. Keep watching and keep praying. Keep watching for what? The end of all things. Keep watching for these prophecies to be fulfilled. Christians will do well to watch for the signs of the times that the Lord has revealed to us while also praying every day for the spiritual strength that we need so that we can fight the good fight of faith as things get harder and harder here in this world. In this way, well, we're able to avoid the mistakes that are made by the believers who end up backsliding as they return to the carousing and the drunkenness and the anxieties of this world. In order to further grasp this prophetic precept, let's consider the way that Paul explains it in the first letter to the church in Thessalonica. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus never called us to figure out the day and the hour of the rapture. If he did, I'd be doing all the math I could, which is very little. I'm not good at math. But nowhere do we see Jesus saying, you need to figure out the day and the hour. And yet, how many Christians are focused on trying to figure out what Jesus never told us to figure out? And to the contrary, actually said, you won't know the day or the hour. But rather than focusing in on the prophetic precepts that we're actually presented with, a lot of Christians just end up backsliding. Because why? Well, because they get off focus. Listen, the Lord didn't call us to figure out the day and the hour of the rapture. No, instead, he called us to walk in the light of his truth so that regardless of when the rapture happens, we'll be ready. We need to be ready in in the way that we just stay focused on Jesus Christ. And and this is precisely the point that Paul makes here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, notice, you have no need that I should write to you. Concerning the times and the seasons, talking about the future uh, uh, events that will transpire uh, after the rapture of the church, he's saying, I don't need to write to you about this. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, 
are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that the born-again believer is going to escape the wrath of God, which will be poured out on this planet during the time of tribulation. During the time of tribulation, God will begin to pour his wrath out upon this planet. But we, Christian, we have not been appointed to this sort of wrath. Therefore, we won't be here during the time of tribulation. That being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, will not overtake us like a thief in the night. Everyone who's here, they'll be caught in a snare. It will overtake them as a thief in the night. Why? Well, because the natural mind is not uh, able to understand the things of God. And while these prophecies are all, you know, written in black and white, they still won't understand. Even as they surround Jerusalem, even as they are led to the Valley of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon, they still won't grasp it until they look up and see the return of Jesus Christ. It will take them like a snare. They will be taken like a thief in the night. But for us, we'll be with him. The church will be returning with him from, from, from heaven. And so it will not overtake us as a thief in the night. At the same time, though, Christian, please hear me when I say this doesn't give us the green light to just spend the rest of our time living for the lust of the flesh. The fact that we will be raptured before the tribulation doesn't mean that we can just live any old way. Because even the person who would say that, well, I've got my fire insurance in Jesus Christ, therefore I can go back to my, my, my licentious living, to that person I would say, are you even a Christian? That's not the mentality of a true born-again believer. That's the mentality of an unbeliever. And with that being the case, I encourage you to consider the, uh, the instructions that the Apostle Peter presents in 1 Peter chapter 4. There, he challenges every Christian to realize that we, Christians, should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked <clears throat> in lewdness, in lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Those who enjoy those things, I would ask, are you even a Christian? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Has your life been changed by your conversion? Has the Holy Spirit sealed you into the body of Christ? Because if you enjoy those things, then chances are you might not be a believer. And if you are a believer, then listen, the grace of God by which we are saved is not a license for us to continue living in sin as we wait for the rapture of the church. Now, the unbelievers around us, they see no problem living for the lust of the flesh because they don't know better. They've never had that repentant change of mind that allows the Holy Spirit to come in by faith in Jesus Christ and begin to transform their lives. They don't, they don't have that mentality. 
But the born-again believer has been called to stay sober as we watch and wait for the end of times. And knowing that the natural mind is unable to understand the future plans of God, we ought to be praying always that we not think with our fallen minds, but that we think with a spiritual mind as God helps us to receive the spiritual wisdom that we need to follow the prophetic precepts that the Lord presented here in the Olivet Discourse. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, it's important for us to remember what the Lord said on the day of his ascension into heaven. This is the day that he's ascending into heaven. He's giving final instructions to his church. And it's in Acts chapter one, where Christ Jesus declares, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the father has put in his own authority. This is what Paul was saying back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why? Well, because according to Jesus Christ, it's not for us to know the times and the seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. Or in other words, there are specific times and seasons on the prophetic calendar that God the Father has chosen to obscure from the minds of men. And while it's true that uh, no one will be able to figure out the day and the hour of the the rapture, it's also true that we've still been called to watch and pray as we seek to understand God's perfect plan. With this as our focus, I encourage you in closing to remember that the prophetic parable of the fig tree can help us to figure out God's future plans. The prophetic promises that we find all throughout the Bible, they, they're also here to help us to figure out God's plans for the future. And the prophetic precept Jesus presented here in the Olivet Discourse is here to help us to figure out God's plans for the future, and more specifically, so that we might live a life that's pleasing to him as we wait for him uh, to, to, to bring an end to all of these things. And with all this in mind, I encourage every Christian to remember that the generation that sees the prophetic promises that we find here in the Olivet Discourse, that generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. The generation that sees the kings of the world gathering around Jerusalem, that generation will not, will not pass away before all these things are fulfilled. And while I can't present you with the specific day when the rapture of the church will finally take place and these things begin to unfold, what I can say is this. I'm certain that I will be shocked if the rapture of the church doesn't take place within this generation. I'll be completely surprised. And yet at the same time, listen, Christians in generations past were also surprised that the rapture didn't take place in their lifetime. What do you say to that? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. That's the challenge we're presented is to watch and pray always. And we would all do well to remember the challenge that Peter presented when he encouraged every Christian to look for and hasten the coming of the day of God. And in this way, the Lord then will help us to figure out the future according to God's perfect plan. Let's pray.